Welcome to another edition of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast feed. My name's Ray. I'm your host. This week's episode is with Chef Jacob Insicor. Uh, he was formerly the chef at Commune for about like two years. He just recently left, and I didn't know that at the time of setting up the podcast with him. He left uh, at kind of the end of December. He goes into it in the podcast. Uh, he's going to be moving to New York, and we kind of get into that. You know, he's a lifer in kind of the Columbus restaurant scene. It's kind of where he grew up. Talk a lot about his career, you know, all the different places he worked in Columbus. Uh, we get into the protests over the summer. You know, he was one of the chefs who was down there, pretty active in the protests. Uh, him and Tyler Minnis are the two that come to mind the most. I'm sure others were too as well. But I just remember seeing their posts and Instagram, you know, videos and stuff like that. So we talk a little bit about that too. And and just kind of restaurants and and all that good stuff, you know, status of Columbus and, and everything. So it's a really cool episode. I'm glad he was able to come on. I do plan on linking back up with him in the future once he moves to New York, just to kind of see, like, I find it really interesting, like, what's New York going to be like when he gets there, just because of COVID and everything. And, you know, depending on where he lands, what restaurant to as well, and type of cuisine he's cooking and, and all that stuff. So definitely looking forward to catching back up with him probably over the summer. One thing about him is he is a doppelganger for Rene Rizepi, who's the chef at Noma. You know, the way they kind of both talk, like there's this measured thoughtfulness in everything that he says. And it's just like a natural measured thoughtfulness. And I was just something that like really struck me when, you know, we kind of first got into the conversation. So I hope like one day, like he goes and works at Noma and then somebody gets a photo of him and Rene like side by side because they're, I mean... If you were casting somebody to play Rene Rizepi in a movie, I mean, you'd, you'd cast you'd cast Jake. So this is my conversation with him about an hour, and uh, enjoy. So yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this, taking some time out uh, to come on the podcast here. Kind of wanted to have you on because Commune is really, I mean, it's gone through a lot, but it's really the only the only vegetable forward. I mean, there's a couple other vegetable forward restaurants throughout the city, but I feel like Commune's kind of the main one and then also the one that people should go to yeah yeah at least from from my perspective on on based on you know eating different restaurants and everything but um mainly wanted to start kind of you know one thing that i've noticed in columbus that's lacking is kind of food media in general um so there's not too much out there on kind of how you got into being a chef and, and what inspired you and everything. So I kind of wanted to start with there, like how, you know, your career thus far, like how you, you know, wound up at Commune. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, first, I guess I should say is that I'm actually no longer with Commune. Oh, okay. Uh, it's very recent. Uh, the end of December was my last day there. Oh, okay. Um, but we can get into that a little bit later. Yeah. But, yeah, um, yeah. yeah um, I mean, I feel like as far as getting into the industry, you know, like a lot of other people that I've worked with, I kind of fell into it. Mm -hmm. um, it was actually something I never wanted to do, something never. I avoided. Yeah, I mean, like my my mom's side of the family, they're like really great cooks. They make amazing food. And so at an early age, I was always interested in cooking. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I had a friend's dad tell me one time he was a cook in the Danish Navy. And he was like, you know, I thought I wanted to be a chef, but then I realized I never wanted to live to work. I wanted to work to live. Yeah. Uh, right. So that was kind of always my motto. Um, and then once I moved to Columbus shortly after high school, I kind of fell into cooking as a part-time gig and then turns out I was pretty good at it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one thing led to another and I never left, stopped going to school and started cooking more. So, so, so where are you from originally then? If you're, you're not a Columbus native, correct? No, yeah. I, I mean, I'm from Mansfield. It's about an hour north. Of oh, there. okay. So you're still an Ohio native. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Born and raised. So you kind of went through school there. Did you start like working at, uh, you know, most chefs kind of seem to find their way to a restaurant. It's kind of like their first job, like being a dishwasher. Like, did you start that way? Or did was it like something in college that you kind of found yourself getting into? Yeah, I mean, you know, I did it to kind of pay the bills for college at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I... I started doing whatever was needed. You know, I just wanted to be in a restaurant and there was one really close to where I was living at the time. Uh, it was Commonwealth sandwich shop. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar. Um, not too much with the Mansfield area, but go on. I'm interested. This is, this is in Columbus actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, uh, yeah. But prior to that, you know, I helped my aunt and uncle out 
part-time in their bar in Mansfield. Uh, but you know, I was washing dishes there, uh, throwing a pizza in their oven every once in a while. And, you know, nothing really stuck with me while I was there. It was okay. just going to end at the time. And then when I came down here and got my first job at Commonwealth, it kind of a little light bulb turned on for me. Okay. And, you know, kind That's of kind of the that. spark. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, did you wind up going to culinary school or did you just kind of get experience within various kitchens? Yeah. No. Yeah. I, uh, I thought about going to culinary school. Um, I had a lot of people I worked with who had been, um, and then a lot of people who hadn't. And for me, it was something that based on what I had heard, it wasn't worth it and mm-hmm. wasn't for me. I think culinary school is a great thing for a lot of people if that's what you need, because structure is really important in any restaurant and it's a great place to learn. But you know, for myself, uh, I decided not to go and kind of learn and get paid at the same time sort of thing, you know? Yeah. Learn on the job in the kitchen. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely something I like to ask everybody just cause I kind of find it pretty interesting that there seems to be a, I wouldn't necessarily, I guess, say like a movement, but I think, you know, there, there's ebbs and flows within any industry's job market. And one of the things now is kind of like a shift towards actual experience versus, you know, the high, the education and everything. Like if you, you know, work in an office building, like there's kind of like this debate as to whether having a master's degree is something that's even worth it. So, so I always find that interesting, you know, with, because the thing that always stood out to me uh, is always the thing that like Dave Chang talked about with culinary school being that they don't, they don't teach you like the business side of running a restaurant, like, like how to, you know, do the accounting and like, you know, accounting costs for food and like all that stuff. So I always find that kind of, kind of interesting. Well, I mean, the other thing too, is that they, one thing that I dislike about the education in culinary schools is that they don't teach you how to manage Mm -hmm. and, you know, getting into cooking. It's when you're a cook, when you're working on the line, when you're doing prep work, your only focus is the food. But if you want to move up in the ladder, you become a manager, you become a sous chef, a chef, whatever it is, like you have to learn how to manage and lead. you don't do much cooking at all at that point. Like cooking as a chef or working in a restaurant as a chef is like 20% cooking. Right. Like that's, that's generous too. Like it's more just like being a therapist, being a dad, being like a mom, whatever it is, like taking care of your team. And I don't understand why that's not something that's more talked about uh, within culinary schools. Maybe it's changed down. I'm not sure, but. I don't think it has yet based on what I've, kind of heard and, and read and yeah. stuff. It doesn't seem like it. It seems like it's still kind of you go and you kind of pick a lane, whether it's Italian or Asian or whatever, or French. Those are kind of like the big three. And then you spend pretty much anywhere from a year to possibly four years, depending on kind of the school. It seems like most are one to two. But um, so you started kind of working in, you know, Columbus, you're bouncing around. So you bounced around to kind of some notable restaurants, I believe. So I think Wolf's Ridge, uh, you worked there for a time, correct? Yeah, I was there for about three years. Okay. Was yeah. that like, that was roughly when they first kind of opened, right? Yeah. Yeah. I came on uh, probably, I don't know, two, three months after they had originally opened. Okay. Um, yeah. So what was... What was that like? Because I mean, that probably, you know, being a new restaurant, that was that like your first experience being involved in like a newly open restaurant? Yeah, I mean, that was pretty much like, I consider that my first restaurant. I mean, for sure, I've worked at a couple other places prior to that, but nothing with like, uh, as much intent as I had when I went on to Wolfridge. Um, It was definitely like where I cut my teeth, I would say. Uh, Okay. Yeah, and going on to a new restaurant, so green in the industry was pretty interesting. Um, and the way things moved there was very different from what I had known prior. Cause it, it's a very large restaurant compared to a lot of others around town. Yeah. Uh, Even more so now that they have like, I mean, I don't think when they originally opened, did they have the like downstairs, like brewery area, like bar uh, area? Yeah. No, not originally that came on. I want to say like a year or more, uh, after they had originally opened, okay. um, and then eventually they had their own kitchen back there to kind of separate the two, mm-hmm. the main dining room. So yeah, now they have the event space like right next door yeah. that they can't use right now because of COVID. But right. um, then from there, I think what you went to, you wound up at Watershed, right? Is yep. that next? Yep. And then so, you know, that's like a, another similar kind of 
distillery, brewery slash restaurant. So did you, was there a lot of difference or was it just kind of more small, like smaller, a little bit more intimate, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely smaller, more intimate. Um, we were able to kind of focus, uh, on more of the minutia, uh, because we weren't cranking out, you know, 200 plus, uh, meals in one service. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and I also really wanted to work with Jack Moore. Uh, he was the chef there. Mm-hmm. He had just gotten done with the sous chef position up at Greenhouse Tavern in Cleveland. Okay. Yep. Uh, working for John Sawyer. Um, and, you know, he was here in town prior to that, working at Sage with Bill Glover. Uh, so, you know, I kind of knew who he was through some friends. And, you know, he just seemed like somebody I really wanted to work with. And so I packed up and went over. How long were you there? Uh, I was only there for about a year, maybe okay. a little bit less than a year. Okay. And then you went to service bar, right? Correct. Yeah. And then I ended up at the service bar with Avishar. So. How was that experience? That was something that really, really shaped me, I guess you could say. Uh, it was definitely some of the most intense uh, couple of years I've had in the industry. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I mean that in a really positive way, too, is like, Avishar is one of the most creative and smartest people I've ever worked with. So, you know, I came on as a cook and he and I kind of had a relationship prior uh, and then eventually worked my way up to being his sous chef, um, his second sous chef. Okay. Um, And it was uh, some of the longest days I've ever worked and some of the hardest days I've ever worked, you know, but honestly, I had never learned so much in such a small amount of time. Uh, working there than I have anywhere else. Uh, and it kind of instilled like, you know, the work ethic that I have today into me. Uh, okay. So, yeah. Did you, now you also spent time in, I believe I read, uh, you went to Charleston at one point. Did you work at McCready's? Yeah. I mean, I, I did a couple of stages, uh, you know, for those who might not know, a stage is just like an unpaid internship in the cooking industry. Um, and yeah, I spent a couple of weeks down there working at McCready's, just at the time ran by Sean Brock, but the chef de cuisine is Daniel Hines. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's out in LA now. Um, and yeah, so I went down there because I had an interest of moving down there um, and wanted to kind of put my feelers out at the time. And yeah, it was a really wonderful experience. Uh, and then you, wound up, you wound up going to Brooklyn too, right? You worked, I think, at Luscus, which is yeah. closed now, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know, actually, if Luxus is close. Uh, they definitely changed their chefs. Right. Uh, okay. When I was there, Luxus was the bar and restaurant run by uh, the owner of Evil Twin Brewing. Uh, uh, not familiar. Uh, it, it's a Danish, uh, Danish guy who came here and started brewing in different breweries around New York and then ended up opening up a flagship bar in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Okay. But uh, really great beer. Um, and then Daniel Burns was the chef of the restaurant. And right. he was the former pastry chef at Noma um, over in Copenhagen. And he came back, started doing his own thing, garnered a Michelin star and does some really cool stuff. And so I wanted to go out there and hang out for a couple of weeks as well. Was it the allure? Like how much did, I guess, the Michelin star play a factor in wanting to go into that kitchen? Like was it, or was it just knowing that, okay, this is this is like the next level probably from, from where you've kind of been in already. Like there's clearly an opportunity where I can learn a lot in this kitchen. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, Michelin stars to me don't necessarily motivate me uh, yeah. because it's kind of like the same people who get the stars, get the same amount of stars every year, you know? Pretty much. Yeah. And it's really hard to get one star if you're, quote unquote, nobody, you know, if you don't have a lot of clout within the area. But, you know, I, I've always kind of followed Daniel Burns through like social media um, from his time at Noma to the time uh, at Luxus. And so I've kind of been following him and his approach to food is uh, very appealing to me in its simplicity and the focus on quality of ingredients mm-hmm. and kind of just understanding kind of like how the flavors meld together, like a tomato and mozzarella, but like kind of finding that that new combo that just works really well, very simply. And it's really clean food too, you know? Right. So then how, so you also did a, I think a pop-up restaurant, right? You started one, um, Higgy? I've done a couple, yeah. Oh, you've done a couple, okay. 
um, I guess what has led you into kind of the, is it just experimenting with a concept that you thought was going to work or was it trying to kind of set the kind of the foundation for something for your own in the future? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the whole reason I wanted to start doing pop-ups in the first place was, I mean, at the time I was just a line cook and whatever restaurant I was working in at the time, and a pop-up was kind of like a way for me to kind of showcase my knowledge thus far. And to kind of also challenge myself to see like what it takes to operate, you know, a 12 course meal mm-hmm. one day, break it down and leave the next, you know, it's, I gotta say pop-ups in restaurants that are not your own is <laughs> like one of the most stressful experiences I've had to date as far as the industry goes. Uh, but it's just kind of like a way to have your own platform when you work underneath so many people and to kind of get your name out there in another way, you know? Right. Well, part of the stress too is is because you just it's a kitchen that you're unfamiliar. I mean, a kitchen's a kitchen, but it's like you don't know. You know, is this burner run like a little bit hotter than the others? Like, where's this? You know. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is yeah, you're in someone's space, and one, you want to be respectful of the space, try not to fuck it up too much, and you know, leave no trail left, no trail. You know, but it's 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 definitely uh, an experience that. Having done it, I'm glad I did it. But do I want to do it again? Not necessarily, you know? Yeah. But it's really fun. And, you know, I was a very naive kid back then, you know? I was, I was much younger then. And it was, it was something that, uh, you know, I, I'm glad I did it, in other words. So Right. So then you wound up, how did you find your way to Commune? Because, I mean, that, that restaurant opened a couple years ago. Um, I think you were part of the opening team there, right? Uh, no, not the opening. Did you join after? Shortly after, a couple months okay. later. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I had kind of just reached a point at Service Bar where I wanted to move on. And uh, so I took some time off. Wasn't really sure what I was going to be doing. Um, and I knew some people that had already been working there at Commune. Um, and so I just kind of put my name in the door just to take a part-time job maybe, or even just a lot of position, kind of lay low, uh, save up some money and figure out what I want to do. And yeah, I came on, I think in March of 2019. Okay. And, uh, shortly after that, the chef at the time, Ben Canaveral had decided to leave. Yeah. Uh, he was the opening chef. I think he's at the crest now, right up in, um, uh, well, I don't think he's there anymore. Um, Okay. But he, he did go there afterwards. Yes. Um, and yeah, so after he left, uh, the two sous chefs they had and myself were kind of asked to, you know, keep things operating, you know, at an even keel. And mm-hmm. one thing led to another and they kind of just, the owners, Joan Brooke offered me the position of head chef. So was that like a surprise or like, did you kind of know it was like an open competition between you three or was it I just kind of, it wasn't really a competition between the three of us really. Um, we we were all just trying to do the best we could, you know. And you know, I've already had uh, a bit of experience being in a position that the two sous chefs were in, and you know, I had already been working in the industry maybe seven years at that point, give or take. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we we were just trying to keep things going, um, if not keep getting the, getting them better, you know. So right, you know, it, it was a bit of a surprise, but I was also kind of just like you know. This is what I always wanted, so why not? Why not try it out? Yeah, yeah. Was it weird at all? Like, I mean, because because Commune is kind of this pillar restaurant pillar for that neighborhood. Like, I mean, you have Parsons Brewing next door, but really, you know, there's the hospital, and then you got to go down a little bit ways before there's you know kind of some mom and pop type restaurants. So yeah. it was yeah. kind of the anchor in this redevelopment. Was that weird knowing that, or, or did it not even affect anything? Uh, I mean, it didn't affect me really, but it, you know, it is in a strange location if you think about its surroundings uh, mm-hmm. when it was first created. Uh, now things are starting to move along a little bit in that area, in the East Public Corner specifically. Yeah, um, you know, there's more small businesses moving in like that. Um, but it was like when Joe and Brooke were looking for a space. I think for them, it just hit everything they wanted as far as price space, uh, the aesthetics, they had, they had really good bones to the building. And, you know, it's not where they necessarily wanted it to be, but it turned out to be a good location. So, right. Now, that, when you're at Commune, I mean, it's, 
It's a vegetable forward restaurant. It's not necessarily vegetarian, correct? Oh, no, no. It is 100% vegetarian. It is 100. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to get the distinction between. Yeah. So. Airline yeah. vegan too, but. Yeah. They can do a lot with, you know, different ingredients being removed from dishes, accommodate yeah. dietary restrictions. Was that, you know, was that part of the, like, was that part of the challenge appealing to you knowing that, okay, I have to stay, you know, I'm going to be cooking vegetarian cuisine, which is not something that everybody really like sets out to do. Like it's pretty difficult to make vegetarian food tasty, but also like artful, like you guys were doing. Sure. I mean, you know, it's, I, all the restaurants I've worked at have been very, very meat heavy restaurants. You know, Mm -hmm. most restaurants that that I've worked in are not, even if they have a vegetarian option, there's usually only one or two, you know? And for me, you know, I, while I love eating meat, it's just one of those things where like, I was sick of just being weighted down by it all. So like, usually if we would come up with a special, uh, or we were adding new dishes to a menu in any of the other previous restaurants I worked in, I was always the one to try and like think about the vegetables. So in a way it wasn't that strange for me to be cooking only vegetarian, but it definitely was uh, a challenge for me at first because, you know, you can't rely on a, a single piece of protein with salt and pepper on it to right. elevate these vegetables anymore. It's like you're, you can't hide behind any of that anymore. Um, and, you know, what I think that that's kind of what intrigued me the most about it was like, you know, this is something I've never done before. I have to figure out how to make a whole meal out of one dish comprised of just vegetables. And, you know, it sounds... A lot of people have this question for me and it's really not as hard as it seems because, you know, I spent my whole life learning how to make delicious food Mm -hmm. and I'm just applying the same things I would to a piece of meat to, you know, a piece of celery root now instead or a potato or, you know, whatever it is, you know? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting way to kind of break it down almost like it's it's just different kind of main ingredient. So being that, you know, and having the experience, did it take you, like, how long did it take before you were kind of comfortable, like experimenting with different things that were kind of outside your normal ingredients that you would use, even still, you know, staying within the vegetarian realm, just, you know, how long did it take before you were like, you know, I want to mess around with, you know, this ingredient over here that I've never really kind of used too much, but I know it'll fit within the theme of the restaurant. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that with anyone in any restaurant, you know, it's just kind of like you work your way up to that point, you know, it, it kind of starts with what is this dish missing? And then you start thinking about things and, you know, the things you already know don't really fit. So now where else do you look? And that's when you start kind of venturing outside of what you know and start learning about new ingredients and new cuisines from different cultures and things like that, you know? Yeah. So, so- and you kind of touched on it too, you know, Columbus, I consider it more of a, it's like a, it's a pretty heavy chain, uh, you know, restaurant scene. Definitely everybody's got a burger on the menu, uh, yeah. definitely a burger town. I and mean, I think we have a burger week. Um, mm-hmm. Do you see, you know, with your time at Commune and, and being so, you know, vegetable focused, did you see a shift at all or see a coming shift in kind of the way Columbus residents eat and dine? Or is it just going to be kind of, vegetarian and, and vegetable forward restaurants will still be kind of the small sub genre within the city. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I will say like, I was kind of shocked at the, the reception that commune got when it first opened before I even worked there, you know? Um, okay. and I know that like there were people coming into the restaurant saying like, why, why, why is there any fish or meat on this menu? Or they order a dish. Like there used to be a pasta bolognese on the menu, but it was made from mushrooms and walnuts. And it's like, well, it says bolognese, so where's the meat? It's like, well, no, this is a vegetarian place, man. Like, what the fuck do you think is going to happen? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it, it took a little bit of time. But the one thing that I will say about Commune is that we've never sacrificed quality or like, we, we never sent out a dish we're never comfortable with. And I think that that has spoken a lot for itself in that regard. You know, we what I tried to do and what I think we did a really good job of is working as a team and criticizing each other. Uh, and like, I would always ask the team to just taste the food. Tell me if you don't like it, because if you don't like it, we're not going to send it out. Right. Um, and so, and, and that takes a lot of time and a lot of patience 
because we, like I said before, we don't have anything to hide behind as far as like a piece of protein, you know, not that cooking a piece of protein is something you're hiding behind, but um, we have to add a little bit of extra to kind of first meet and then exceed the guest expectations because we don't have any meat on the plate, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that, you know, we are already seeing like a bunch of vegetarian and vegan places opening up in Columbus that, and seem from my, you know, view to be doing pretty well. Like, you know, you have Woodhouse um, vegan, and then you have uh, 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 Village Taco. Yep. Village Taco. From Commune and, you know, there's some others, uh, whether they're a chain or not, that are popping up here and there. But I think that Columbus is tapping into the health-centric people in the community. And so for them, like, they hear vegetarian and they think, oh, it's going to be healthy for me. So I think there's, like, you know, you have your smoothie bowl places and then you have places that are a little bit more comforting, you know, like Village Taco or Woodhouse. And then you have Commune that's, we were trying to do something that was a little bit more upscale. Right. Uh, but you know, it's, it's hard to say, you know, every time I think Columbus is ready for something, I'm kind of disappointed in them, you know, and I think it's going to take a lot of time because we, this is a test market city, you know, so things come and go very fast. And if you're not catching people's attention, then you're, it's going to take you a very long time or you might not ever succeed in catching their attention. So it's, yeah. Like the one, I mean, I forget the stat, but it's something between, I think it's like 70 to 80% of kind of like the the population is within a thousand miles of Columbus. So that's why it's right. basically a test market for any corporate chain for really any new product, whether it's, you know, Wendy's or, because I mean, Wendy's has a footprint here, but all of them. So, you know, we always get the, oh, this restaurant's trying to expand out of Chicago. Well, let's drop yeah. a, yeah. let's drop it in Columbus and see, you know, what the, I don't know, the the average American would if they would like it kind of thing. Um you were so over the the summer, um, there was obviously the the incident, you know, the death of George Floyd and, and we had protests here um downtown and you were down at some of those, if I remember your uh, yeah. story correct. So what was that like? Because, you know, I remember there was I think it was the Saturday. And the protests were scheduled. They've been going on for, I think, a, a day or two already up to that point. And I remember it being just, you know, you had people protesting a couple of days in a row. It was hot out. It was humid. It was above 90 degrees. The sun was out. And you could just kind of tell, just even moving about the city, just limited capacity with coronavirus and everything, that like it was something was going to like, happen like you could just kind of feel the tension in the air was that kind of the same feeling when you being downtown or like what was your experience kind of being downtown for that well i mean i think that you know my experience downtown was i was you know i wanted to show support and i think that within this country there are countless you know injustices that happen on a daily basis that we don't even know about um and the ones we do know about are not being met with the appropriate response from our governments. Um, And there's so many deep-seated issues with that, you know, the way the systems are set up, the racial uh, inequality that we have in every town across America without there being any, uh, without there being any... Oversight or correction, really. Well, oversight or correction, but nobody wants to do these things, Uh, you know, they, they have these city hall meetings, they have all of these hearings about safety, about police reform, but nobody wants to do anything about it after the fact. And so, you know, we reached a point as a nation that obviously, like, this has got to stop. When is it going to stop? Um, black men, women, non-binary are dying every day because of the way that they're racially profiled. And, you know, being downtown in Columbus was... Uh, it was a crazy place to be just as far as what the protesters were met with by the police. You know, you had the response was definitely way over the top. Um, I mean, you could, you could tell from, I mean, Twitter, you can log into the police scanner, all that stuff, but it was clear that there was really no reason from, at least from, you know, the police perspective, you want to block off streets, all that stuff. That's fine. But they definitely took it to like another level that it didn't need to go to. Like, there was no reason for there to be any sort of physical confrontations. Everybody seemed to be peacefully protesting. And 
really the police seem to be the ones, at least in my opinion, that escalated what, and, and it wasn't, you know, there was like the one night where there was a little, little bit of stuff, but I mean, it wasn't like there was full fledged well, rioting or anything like that. When, when people start getting out and supporting, you know, the black lives matter movement, the police respond with riot gear, tear gas, you know, rubber bullets. And it's like, they, they don't want us to be heard. They don't want the Black voices in America to be heard because then it changes their system, you know? Right. And they don't want to change their system because they're making $90,000 a year as a police officer, you know? So yeah, with the overtime and all that stuff too, yeah. Yeah, meanwhile, teachers are using their own, you know, fucking their own income to supply their classrooms with supplies. And it's just... There's, there's not a balance there and there hasn't been for hundreds of years. And so, you know, being downtown, being down there was like the least anyone could have done, you know, to support. Right. And you guys, and one thing that I don't think got a whole lot of attention when you were still at Commune, you guys did, I think it was like August that you basically, was it donating all the profits from the to-go to like different black organizations, Black Lives Matter organizations and stuff like that. It was like four of them. You guys raised a substantial amount of money, but like, I think it was yeah. mostly in the story section of Instagram. I don't, I don't remember um, seeing any posts, but like you guys were super transparent in like the amount of money that was raised and like where it was going. Is right. that something yeah. that you think, you know, obviously restaurants have to take care of their own with being you know, the pandemic and lack of funding and all that stuff. But do you think that's something that more places will do in the future once everything kind of goes back closer to the way it was before the pandemic? Sorry, could you repeat that last part? Yeah. So like, do you think, you know, that fundraising effort that you guys did, is that some like a model that you think more places will adopt in the future after the pandemic kind of, I don't want to say go, we go back to normal because there is, you know, what is normal, yeah. but, but get back closer to where people are moving about freely, you know, around the cities and stuff yeah. like that. And restaurants are fully staffed and they can have people in there. Do you think like, like that model that you guys did is something that'll catch on? Um, you know, yes and no. I mean, I mean, after that one month we were doing it, we, we stopped doing it, you know, for, for a multitude of reasons. Like one of them being is that, well, there's, as a restaurant, we weren't making enough money. Um, right. So we had a, Put a pause on that because we were scraping by as it was. Um, so you know, I, I think in the future, I, I hope that that is a model people will adapt. You know, I don't think it's going to be 100% of profit will be donated, but I hope that a strong percentage would be, um, and not just to you know black organizations that are national or local, but just to your community as well. You know, um, I think that the past year has highlighted a lot of. Uh, issues and problems we have within our systems, um, whether it be racial injustice or, uh, you know, just communities that have been neglected by their own government. I think we're seeing what the power of community can do. Um, At least I know I am through my group of friends. uh, You know, we're seeing we're seeing a change that I don't think we would have seen until another 10 or 15 years. I think that the coronavirus, I think that the protests for equality have, you know, kind of jump-started and kind of quickened up the speed of things as far as where we were headed um, as a country and as an industry. Um, and And I hope that most restaurants are able to make enough money that they can donate, you know, and and that's what it comes down to is, are you going to be able to survive as a business if you're donating? Right. Uh, how much you're donating. Um, but I, I think it's important to not just give back to your community, but to give back to your employees as well. Um, and that's another thing that's changing that people are just now starting to talk about is wages within the industry. Um, minimum wage has been a big topic of debate lately for some reason. Like, I don't understand why it's a debate, but uh, it's things are changing and they're changing much faster than I think we anticipated. So, yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see kind of the first two years of the new administration, how much that they can get through, how far that they can kind of push things to, I mean, really do the things that they've been alluding to and talking about for the last, you know, I guess like four years, um, really, you know, with with Bernie's 
platform and all his ideas and everything like that. Right. But when you guys were, were doing the fundraising stuff, I mean, you guys shifted when you're at Commune um, to pretty much just to go. And you was like a skeleton crew of, I think, you and maybe one or two other people. So yeah. how, I mean, was that something that you were able to kind of figure out over time with figuring out like what works in the to-go format from like dishes and, and get dialed in or was it just a constant challenge? Yeah, I, I mean, it was a constant challenge. Um, when we first came back and uh, we switched to to-go only, we were trying to do, we were trying to sell what we knew we were going to sell. So we were doing mm-hmm. pre-order meals take home stuff like that uh, to limit contact within our building to limit customer contact as well. And, you know, in the beginning it was just me and Joe, the owner working. And so for the first week that we came back and, you know, we did like, I think over 80 meals that had like, I think six courses. And so I was like, (laughs) I was like, I can't do this. And you like, I can't do this sustainably, but right. Uh, you know, so we slowly hired back one by one till we got a crew of three uh, included. And, you know, we decided that we were going to try and change the menu every week um, to kind of provide, you know, a little bit of nuance to stay relevant because that's like any restaurant's biggest fear right now is if I keep the same shit going on, are people going to come back? Right. Regulars can only sustain you for so long. Uh, and so we were constantly trying to tap into that untapped market. Uh, and so we just kept digging into the well week by week, uh, trying to produce something that sounded delicious, uh, keep a good price point that made sense for us and for the customer. Um, and then, you know, one thing led to another and we decided to take a break because it was just a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's funny too, is that, you know, I've been telling a lot of people this is right now, a lot of restaurants are slower than they've ever been. But for me, I felt busier than I've ever felt in this industry because of just, it, it just didn't feel good doing, mm-hmm. you know, because you're used to performing in a certain way. You're used to a full dining room. You're used to having instant feedback. And right. so, you know, putting food in boxes is... It's not glamorous. <laughs> not glamorous. Well, I don't really think the restaurant life is that glamorous. But yeah, I mean, for sure, going from plates to boxes is, you know, I, I don't like to say soul-sucking, but it, it doesn't feel great, you know? And so you're constantly asking yourself, like, what am I doing right now? And, you know, it, it feels like more work mentally and emotionally than, you know, it ever has. Right. And, you know, the, the restaurant industry is notorious for creating and maintaining, you know, mental instability, you know, and for sure, I think that right now it's kind of like, it's bad. Like it's really bad as far as like how it's affecting people within the industry, you know? And yeah, for me, it was almost too much. So, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, even just America, the work culture as a whole is just, it's, it's just a grind. It's just a, you know, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. I think the restaurant industry is more definitely more susceptible just because of the wage stagnation or even lack thereof, you know, and, and the minimum wage like you touched on and everything. But it's, you know, in America, you don't get, you know, a month of vacation or anything like that. In the restaurant industry, you even if you do get that, you probably can't afford to take that, you know, depending on what your wage is and, and what restaurant you're working at. So, so now that you're no longer at Commune, what's What's next? I, I don't aim to break news or anything. I didn't know you were no longer there. Oh, no, no, but, no, no, you're good. You're good. But yeah. um, but yeah, what what's what's next now that uh, now that you're not there? Well, right now I am just laying low, kind of trying to figure my life out. Um, you know, I I'm gonna be moving to New York uh, come April. Okay. So yeah, my partner got a job. Um, at a golf club out there and she's uh she'll be working on long island so we're gonna probably find a place near queens okay and, the ferry. and i'll commute into the city um, yeah so it uh we'll see you know i have a lot of places i want to work um right now my mentality i mean my mentality has always been you know if you're not learning you should probably move on um mm-hmm. and or if you feel like you're not learning and so you know there's a ton of places that are in New York right now that 
you know, are you either clo- closed until further notice or right. are doing the curbside uh, uh, structures, which are interesting. But, you know, I figure, you know, in a fucked up way, now is a good time to get my name in people's minds uh, so that when they reopen, maybe I'll have a shot at getting a job somewhere. Yeah, it does feel like like New York once once they pull the you know the lid off or whatever, and everybody kind of goes back to you know at least in the summer they'll be able to have outdoor dining and stuff like that on sidewalks yeah. and and whatnot. Yeah. But once that like it just feels like it's going to be a wave, and there's going to be just everybody, all the restaurant owners will be looking around like we don't have enough people. Like where are they? And they yeah. all they yeah. all I mean left the area. Not that anybody probably really even lives in you know Manhattan or anything like that. It's just not cost um, feasible or anything like that. Is there any place like in New York, or I shouldn't say place specifically, but is there any kind of style of cuisine that you're looking? You know, you did the vegetarian thing, you know, yeah. sandwich shop, beer distillery, restaurant thing. Like, is there like are you looking like Italian seems intriguing or Mediterranean or? Sure, sure. Um, you know, I. I don't, when I look for a job, I don't necessarily look at the kind, like the region of food that people are okay. cooking. I, I kind of just look for the approach and the mentality of cooking, um, you know, whether it's thoughtful or not, uh, intentional or not, how they source their ingredients is really important to me. Um, but, you know, I have a few places off the top of my mind that I would love to find a spot at, you know, mm-hmm. off the list is per se, um, that's a place I've always wanted to work at. And it's kind of a nice place to, uh, you know, put your head down and kind of re-examine how you do every single thing you do mm-hmm. uh, in a kitchen. And that's the kind of cooking that I was uh, attracted to when I first got into the industry. It's just like that really rigorous, really uh, rigid and clean food. Um, it, it's something that a lot of people are getting away from right now. Um you know, understandably so. Like, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, during COVID, we're trying to find ways to make people feel comfort- comforted, you know? So yeah. in that, but uh, per se is definitely up there. Um, Asuka is a restaurant in Brooklyn. Um, I've always wanted to work there. Uh, Frederick does some really cool food there. Um, I'd love to get a chance to work for him. Um, and yeah, so like basically I'm prepared to just start at the very bottom of the totem pole, wherever I end up. And try and work my way up. So awesome. So, do you think you'll be in New York long term, or are you just kind of flying by seat of your pants? Like ooh, I'm there ooh. for as long as I'm there, and whatever. It's uh, it's up in the air. You know, uh, the opportunity that's in New York is unlike a lot of other places in the U.S. As far as like uh, amazing restaurants and need for good cooks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I saw out there, everyone told me the same thing: is that yeah, like New York's a big city and there's a ton of great restaurants, but good cooks are still really hard to find. So, okay. So aside, I mean, I know you're moving there, you know, because your partner, she's moving there, but if she wasn't, would you still, do you think be in Columbus or would you have gone the opposite direction and gone out West or, well, or yeah, New York, New York kind of always have a draw to you since, you know, you spent some time there before. You know, New York hasn't always had a draw to me. It's, it's been one of those things in the back of my mind where it's like, there's a lot of great restaurants there. Uh, some of the most notable ones that kind of like help shape American fine dining are in New York. Uh, but it's not, um, it's not been a place I've ever really wanted to put my feet down mm-hmm. in or like settle down in. Uh, so the answer is pro- I probably wouldn't be going if she wasn't already going. Uh, okay. But it, it's still like a thing that I feel like it would be silly to pass up this opportunity. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, honestly, I was preparing to move out west. Okay. Um, and there's a lot of places out west that I eventually want to get to. Um, you know, I've also been trying to get a visa working so I can go overseas to a couple places. So, you know, I think in the next five years, you know, I could be any number of places. But right now it's New York and we'll see what happens after that. Awesome. So I've got a few more questions for you and then we'll get you out of here. Like I said, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, taking some time. Um, we kind of ask these questions to everybody who comes on the podcast who's within the industry. So uh, who is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far, would you say? Ooh, biggest influence. Um, you know, I, I think that Jacques Pepin was 
one of the biggest, he's the one that got me into cooking because of his TV show on PBS. Uh, but you know, it, there's not one person that I really look up to on a totem pole. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Renee Redzep, he's definitely been up there for me. The style and the approach to cooking has always been appealing to me. Uh, but then people like Jeremy Fox out West, you know, Bertie G's and like uh, over at Saison, like uh, what's his name? Uh, Josh. Uh, yeah. He's no longer there or oh, right. he's uh, doing, uh, involved with that anymore. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing angler, right? Uh, I don't. So, I mean, him and I had an exchange through Instagram and I don't know if he, how much he's involved with that either. He's definitely focused on his ranch concept. Um, but yeah, there's just some stuff. I, I, he sold his share of Saison, I guess it, it was very confusing just because of the way it was reported. Like I do a lot of research through, you know, out there, it'd be like the San Francisco Chronicle. They have, you know, yeah. and you're reading all these things. And one thing, you know, kind of the reason why I ask everybody how they got in the industry and kind of go through a rough timeline is just because there's never seems to be any two publications that match up for anybody almost. Like it'll say this person was, you know, went to culinary school in 2001 and then you read something else. And it's like, yeah, they were there for eight weeks and they dropped out. Like they didn't complete, you know, yeah. and it's all, so I try and get, you know, at least everybody can do it in their own words of like, this is kind of how it went for me. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. There seems to be some like more details based on the stuff that I read, but I, I know he said he's focusing on his, his ranch concept, which is like, uh, almost okay. like a hunting and fishing retreat and like cooking stuff over an open fire. And it seems really cool. Um, I think it was like in Washington state where he had the property, but I was hoping, you know, hopefully eventually he'll, he'll come on. He's, not exactly uh, somebody who enjoys doing interviews or anything. So maybe yeah. one day. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, another one who's at the top of my list, her name's uh, Alana Reagan. Um, she has a like little cottage concept as well, like ranch concept up in like the upper peninsula in Michigan. Um, and I don't know if she's still doing it, but uh, it was relatively new and she had worked in fine dining in a number of restaurants some really great stuff and her approach to food is something that i really enjoy as well yeah um what's the one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without mm. good spoons good spoons why what what's the well i mean spoons like spoons are one of the most important tools because they're in all of your veins at work you know like they're in all of your prep it's what you use to put food into a hot pan most of the time it's what you use to you know, kind of like shape things. It's we use to baste whatever you're searing in a pan with butter. It's I usually plate with spoons. Uh, some people hate that, but I just love the way spoon feels in my hands. The weight of a spoon is really important, and the like Balance. the depth of the spoon as well. Yeah, so it's there's some really good spoons out there that cost a lot of money, and I may or may not have a couple of them, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I did. I didn't know that there was really good spoons out there. I mean, oh so, yeah, that's I think you've seen them all, but yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, what's? I mean, not, you're not at a restaurant right now, but what's what's the one restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your? So not commune since you were just there, but um, you know, I'd say Chapman's. Uh, Chap Chapman's is pretty great. Uh, VJ Lieberman is the chef over there, friend of mine. Um, he came up from uh, DC. It's pretty notable guy. I think you've done a, couple, a little bit of work on him as well, right? Yeah, we were uh, in contact. So hopefully he'll be coming on the podcast soon. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, for those that don't know, he helped with Aaron Silverman's restaurants out there. So it's the Roses Luxury, yeah. or I think it's Roses Luxury Restaurant Group. But it's Roses Luxury, Pineapple Pearls, and uh, Little Pearl, I think. Yeah, are the, the yeah he was at uh, Little Pearl and Roses Luxury. I think he was the chef of both of those at once. Yeah. Both hundred Michelin star, which is crazy to do with two Mich- two two restaurants, you know, let alone having three restaurant with like five stars total. So yeah. It's an insane operation they have down there. But uh yeah, I think that VJ stuff is really great. He changes it up a lot lately. Um, they're doing everything they can to stay operational. And, you know, uh I think that Columbus is lucky to have them. So yeah, agreed. Uh, what's the kind of bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant that you want to go to? 
Oof, oof, that's a tough one. I don't know. I mean, there's so many to choose from. Within the States, um, I would say maybe uh, Willow Zen. Where, where's that? Is That's not out in Washington, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's in Washington. Okay. Um, on the San Juan Islands. Um, and I might not have this information correct. I don't know if he's still there or not, but Blaine Wetzel is the chef there. Um, they recently came out with a book. Uh, it's really great if you don't have it, but um, it's called Island Cooking. Okay. But uh, it's it's a similar approach to the food at Noma as far as the way they source the amount of foraging that goes into it and kind of highlighting the the region that they're in. Um, and Blaine, if I'm not mistaken, he did spend some time at Noma. Uh, and it's one of those places that it's just like a very romantic idea of being on an island in the Pacific Northwest, eating some of the most delicious food that you can probably get around. And uh, yeah, it's, it's up there for sure. Cool. What's the, uh, what's the craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you were working? Craziest thing. Like, like, uh, like we had Kevin said, um, Kevin kept it about himself and he accidentally stabbed himself with a knife. Um, I think Jay, Jay said, uh, it was the, the safety system going off cause the executive chef was holding a, a pan that had flames coming out of it too high and it set off the whole, oh shit, the whole thing. So I mean, it, it could be anything. I mean, you know, two tables uh, fighting in the dining room. Like what, what you got? I mean, yeah, I've seen a, multiple fights in dining rooms, but that, that's not the crazy, the craziest thing that happened is that, so you have like these big rolls of butcher paper, right? And they're like hundred pounds, maybe. Uh, you start taking paper off, it'll get down. But I remember one time I was working the line and it was pretty chaotic. I was very green at the time and I could hear everyone in the dining room just like screaming, yelling, waiting for their food. And then the chef just I just see this like white flash beside my head and it's this giant fucking butcher paper roll going past my head and into the stainless steel wall and just like making a big old dent and it just lands on my grill. I'm just like, uh, all right, cool. <laughs> you no, know, I've, I've had pans thrown at me before, you know, it, you know, that's a culture in restaurants that is dying out. Yeah. And if not, it's almost completely dead depending where you go, but it's, I don't miss it, but yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. What's uh, your food or drink guilty pleasure? I know most chefs don't don't actually drink alcohol. I'm not sure if you're one of those or not, but food or drink guilty pleasure. Uh, I do indulge in alcohol. Uh, guilty pleasure, guilty pleasure. Oh, I don't know. I I wouldn't consider any of my pleasures guilty. I'll be honest. You know, I'll... there's no there's no no food that you're like. You know, for me, it's uh, peanut butter M&Ms. Like if well, I, if I get one of those, like if I get a bag from the store or something, like I'll eat the, the whole thing in a day. Like it's just, it's same for whatever reason. Reese's. Uh, my freezer almost always has a bag of unwrapped Reese's cups that they make. They're like the little mini ones. And oh, okay. those things like, yeah, I'll eat one bag in one sitting, you know, it's, it's it's disturbing how much Reese's I can consume in one day. So does it have to be the mini cups or like you a Reese's egg guy or a Christmas tree? My wife maintains that the, I think it's the eggs, the the Easter eggs are the ones, but I mean, they put them in different shapes, pumpkins, whatnot, but I guess that's the best ratio from what she tells me. I don't know that I've ever had those, but the, the Christmas tree, the cups, honestly, to me, they're all the same. Okay. Uh, for sure, the ratio is very important. So for that reason alone, I would go with the cups. Uh, it's a classic. The minis, actually, I think they might have the best ratio out of what I've had from them, to be honest. And these are the, the milk chocolate ones, right? You're not the dark chocolate Reese's. No, no, no. Okay. Yeah. Classic. Okay. Classics, yeah. I, I'm not a big fan of their dark chocolate stuff, honestly. Because if it had salt on it, I would probably love it. But dark chocolate without salt, to me, is a sad thing. So. Uh, what's the... The one dish, like your favorite dish that you ever cooked or created so far, what's the one that stands out like your aha moment? Well, for me, and it's one that, of course, wasn't like a great seller, but it was the panzanella salad we did at Commune. Uh, I think it went on last summer. 
or not, not last summer, but the summer before, uh, 2019. Uh, that was my all time favorite. I think, um, you know, I, we had some Matija bread just lying around from our sandwiches in the daytime. And some of it was going to go a bit stale. So we started grilling it. Uh, we had some leftover tomatoes and this was me just making like a quick staff meal for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just made a panzanella out of it. And then I dressed it with verjou that the bar had lying around and it just clicked. And from that point on, I was like, we're going to make a dish out of this. And I think it was definitely one of the prettiest dishes that's ever come out of commune. But uh, to me, that was the one I think I was most proud of for sure. Cool. And then uh, what is, you know, we do a podcast where we rewatch Anthony Bourdain episodes because there's very little content on TV these days. That's super interesting. So um, what's your favorite kind of Anthony Bourdain episode moment scene? The one that kind of you always remember stands out to you. Um, Sardinia. When he went to Sardinia. Uh, so Sardinia is an island off the coast of Italy. Um, they speak a completely different language there. Uh, it's pretty much like a different dialect of Italian. Uh, and that episode is definitely... I had that episode on my little iPod. Mm-hmm. That's that's how much I loved it. And that's how old that episode is. Uh, it probably came out like over 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's a no reservations episode. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. That's definitely before, I mean, that's probably like season six or seven, I think, somewhere sure. there maybe. Yeah. yeah. But uh, for me, that episode was just kind of like, it's all the things that make you feel good about food and all the food that makes you feel good is in that episode, you know? And it's very romantic too. Like they're they're on this like beautiful hillside, drinking wine, eating amazing cheese with honey and, prosciutto and flatbread with cured fish roe. And it's just like all the indulgences that I feel like most people crave, uh, but never really get to enjoy, you know? And that's something that's always been like, I want to get to this point in my life. You know? Yeah, for sure. Where, uh, where can people find you? Plug your stuff, social media, website, uh, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, right now, all I'm doing is Instagram. So that's going to be Cobezilla. Uh, that's C-O-B-E-E. C-O-B-E-Z-I-L-L-A. And, you know, I've been trying to get a little bit more active there now, especially that I don't have a job. uh, Keep myself relevant, you know? There you go. Uh, But yeah. I, again, appreciate you coming on. Uh, Definitely open invitation for wherever you wind up in New York and, you know, you want to talk about the experience. Love to have you back on um, whenever you get out there and wherever you land and once you get kind of settled. But, once again, I appreciate you coming on and, and good luck with the move to New York. And we'll be, we'll be talking with you soon. Awesome. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks again to Chef Jacob Inscore for coming on the podcast. Uh, good luck with the move. Like I said, I do plan on staying in touch with him and uh, definitely check in on him You know, over the summer once he's kind of settled in New York. I think it's going to be a pretty interesting episode to see how you know, New York has changed from, you know, since I was last there and then, you know, kind of what the restaurant scene is now, you know, there over the summer. I mean, they'll probably have indoor dining or outdoor dining, I should say. But I mean, it's still, you know, a completely different dynamic. So uh, it's really cool to catch up with them. You know, wish them the best of luck on the move and be staying in touch. As for everything else, you know, appreciate everybody listening. Check out the Instagram feed. Make sure you visit the website. Constantly kind of tinkering with that. Kind of changed over some looks and stuff like that uh broke out the podcast into different sections and uh kind of redid some of the links so if you're going uh, through the website to get to the podcast uh, you should be subscribing on apple or spotify whatever podcast player that you use so make sure you subscribe to the feed but if you are using the the website to listen to an episode or go back through the catalog or something it's all up there it's broken out put in little click bubbles now so it'll take you right to our page on Anchor. And then from there, once you get to that page, you can either listen on that page or you can go to the iTunes or the Spotify or Pocket Cast or whatever. They don't have all the icons for everything that we're on, but we are on Amazon Podcasts. You can find us. You should be able to find us now just by searching Spoon Mob instead of Spoon Mob Pod. Changed, uh, just got rid of the pod out of the name. So the RSS feed is updated. It's not a different feed. So should just update if you're already following but if you're searching for us on any of the platforms just search spoon mob should see it come up 
uh, iHeartRadio, uh, what TuneIn, you know, Stitcher, pretty much every platform that you can be on, I think, except for Pandora, which Pandora is strange. We've submitted a couple times. They just haven't approved it. I don't, I didn't know really you could listen to podcasts on Pandora, so I'm not mad about it. I don't know how many people use it. Check out all that stuff. We got, uh, you know, the Parts Unknown podcast we do every week, restaurant reviews, still doing those. Chef interviews kind of do uh, once every other week. I'm still kind of going through a list of trying to get some people scheduled and everything. And then we'll be expanding. You know, there's a, you know, one person I want to have on. She's the owner of this plant shop just outside of Cincinnati. And she started in her garage. So she's somebody, you know, that I think would be interesting. It, it's not food related, but just kind of how she started this business in the middle, you know, of a pandemic. And it started out of her garage. And now it's this full-fledged business with its own brick and mortar location. I think that'd be pretty cool too. So kind of get you know, going to do some random stuff like that too as well, but, and we'll talk to you guys next week.